Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us for a look this week at Science Matters is the one and only Charlie Limeweaver. Charlie, good evening. Welcome back to Nightlife. Good evening, vertebrate. <laughs> I'll try and have some keep some spine in the conversation. There, oh, there are new new attempts to keep the far side of the moon quiet for radio astronomy. The far side of the moon, uh, we haven't talked about this for a while. It's an interesting place, and we you never see it, of course, because it's the far side of the moon. Uh, what goes on over there, Charlie? Well, well, first of all, so it's the far side of the moon, as you say, and it's and it's always away from us. We cannot see it. As a matter of fact, I think the first satellite, there was a Russian satellite in something like 1958, which went around the moon and it took pictures of the far side of the moon. So if you look at the names of the largest craters on the back side of the moon, hmm. you will see that many of them have Russian names. Does it so look like a, the front side of the moon? Uh, pretty much. They're not quite as many of the mare. You know, the mare are these like the sea of tranquility and the mm-hmm. sea of uh, the, the other seas. They're not quite as many gigantic looking uh, uh, mare. So on the backside. And it's, it's, da- the- and it's dark all the time over there, is it? Well, no, it's not dark. It's just far. It's it's. <laughs> well, this is the point of the story today. That is the far side of the moon never looks at the Earth. Right. Now, if you're an optical astronomer, you do not look at the stars during the daytime. Why? Because the brightest object in the sky is the sun, and that blocks out all the light. It, it just blurs everything. So you have to wait till the night hmm. so the Earth blocks the sun, and then you can see those other stars. Well, similarly, for a radio astronomer, you know, if you ever go to a radio observatory, you will see that they're working night and day. So they can see through the atmosphere, and, they, and sunlight doesn't bother them because the sun is not that large an emitter of radio waves. But you know what the largest emitter of radio waves is? It's the Earth. And increasingly, the Earth is getting louder and louder. That's why lots of money was put into finding the most radio quiet regions of the of the Earth. And the, the biggest, fanciest radio telescope is now being built in Western Australia hmm. and South Africa, where they're most radio quiet. But in the future, we want an even quieter region and that quietest region will be the backside of the moon. Why? Because the moon blocks out the Earth, and you never see the Earth, and that's the biggest, brightest thing. Just like the sun is the biggest, brightest right. thing if you're in the But there's telescope. no reason why we can't go there and land there and do all these other things we're proposing to do on the moon on the far side of the moon. It's just that well, I wonder why we don't go there as much, because of what? Well, we're, oh, many, many of the missions are, will go there precisely for the reason I just said, and that is it's radio quiet, and so you can do the best radio observations of the distant universe and cosmology. As a matter of fact, next year, a first telescope will be put, uh, it's kind of like a, pro, a test telescope will be put on the backside of the moon. The pro, the reason why it's going to be, you have to be careful is because, you know, we have GPS, global positioning satellites. Hmm. Pretty soon we're going to have LPS, lunar positioning satellites, and a whole slew of satellites are going to be in orbit around the moon. Why? So stations that are on the moon will be able to transmit information to and from the Earth. And this is not just a joke. I I think somebody did a a survey and said there are going to be something like 250 missions to the moon over the next decade. That's incredible. So the moon is just going to explode in terms of, you know, transportation and telegraph. You need need something to, (laughs) some way to talk. Gee, McDonald's can't be far away. Hmm. But but the problem is that all these radio things, any satellite communicates with radio. And so that's interference. And so they have to make sure that these CubeSats or whatever these lunar positioning satellites are going to be made of are very well characterized. So they're very narrow frequency and not just spread out all over the place like 
not like many of the satellites are today. Mm, okay. Now, is it worthwhile wearing a watch on the moon uh, <laughs> or not, Charlie? Well, the, well, the, the Europeans are trying to to make everybody in the world agree on what time is it on the moon. Some what? people said, <laughs> "Yes, you need to know what time it is on the moon." What do you mean they can't? They, people can't agree on this. <laughs> That's right. People can't agree on what time it is. On, I mean, you know how many decades it took us to agree on like universal time goes through the Greenwich longitude or or figure out where the longitude goes. You know how? The matter of fact, in France and Paris, they still have zero longitude going through Paris. <laughs> <laughs> And so it takes a long time for people to get together and say, okay, where's the zero longitude? Matter of fact, we're going to have to put longitude lines on the moon, and where are they going to go? Where's the zero? So these oh, are I see. Okay. Right. And also, even making it worse, is that your clock on, you know, if you have a watch and you hold it up in the air, it goes slower. And if you put it down, a larger gravitational field, it goes uh I'm sorry, it goes slower when it goes closer to the Earth. Mm -hmm. And so the moon clocks, being in less of a gravitational field, will go faster. Some guy calculated that it, they will go 56 milliseconds every 24-hour difference. That's quite, so, that's quite a lot in timekeeping, isn't it? It is. It is. And so so the, if we do establish a really good, sensitive, precise clocks around the moon, they're not going to be in sync with the most precise clocks we have on Earth. So you have to be there will be a correction there. So wow. moving to the moon, a whole civilization with different cultures and different time zones. And then you have to figure out what are the time zones on the moon? How many are they going to be? They're going to be 24 like we have on Earth or, uh, you know, an hour each. But then the, uh, a, a day on the moon is a, is a, a month, yeah, right? That's true. So if you're working on one part of the moon, you're going to have a, a day that lasts 29.5 days. Anyway, it's a little interesting, complicated yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, I see the problem. Anyway, back on Earth. Back on Earth, we know more. We probably know more about the moon than we know what's in the Earth's core, don't we? Well, uh, the Earth's core is something that's being studied, and the Research School of Earth Science at ANU has recently published a wonderful paper saying, hey, you know, usually if you look at this, the diagram of the Earth, you'll see it has a core, hmm. it has a mantle, and then it has a crust. Yeah. Those, those, and actually, we've divided the core into an inner core and an outer core. The inner core is solid, and the outer core is liquid. Hang and on. That's the inner core is solid. Well, right at the center of the Earth, it's solid, is it? Yes, yes. I thought it was solid. a boiling, furious mass of molten iron. That's the outer liquid core of the oh. Earth, and well, that's what's making the So in the middle is a giant rock-hard diamond. Uh, well, I wouldn't say rock hard. I would say iron hard. And I wouldn't say diamond because diamond is carbon. I would say an, uh, just a bar of iron, just really high pressure, solid iron and nickel. Wow. Why is it solid when all around is boiling molten metal? Because it's under high pressure. You take any oh. uh, any object and squeeze it. If it's, if, For example, if you squeeze uh, liquid water and you squeeze it enough, it will turn into solid. Okay. Uh, just pressure turns things. If you pressurize gas, it turns into liquid. Pressurize the liquid, turns into solid. And pressurize a not solid, it'll turn into a different type of solid. Anyway, the what these scientists, these seismologists did at ANU was they looked at 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 earthquakes. You know, here's the thing. You know, the Earth is a ball, and you have an earthquake on one side of the Earth. And if you have a seismic station on the exact antipode, exact opposite place, then the wave from the earthquake has to go right through the middle. 
And if you have enough seismic stations, then you can increase the signal to noise so you can see them go from one side of the earth to the other, to back to the other side, back to the other side, and, and, and just echo back and forth five times. And with this heightened sensitivity, they were able to determine that this inner solid core is made out of two parts, an inner inner core and an inner core. <laughs> so the... Wow. Well, okay. So let me so let me say that again. The core of the Earth has an outer liquid core, mm-hmm. a solid inner core, and then inside that solid inner core, there's another thing called the inner inner core that they just discovered through this fancy technique of amplifying. And what's that? What's that? Is it? Hot? It's made out of the same stuff, but interestingly, it may it seems to be made out of stuff that was crystallized in maybe in a different direction. So it's a it was crystallized in a very early stage of Earth's formation, but it may have crystallized it in a different direction. And so the the waves that pass through equator to equator have a different speed through the inner inner core than the ones that travel from the pole to the back to the North Pole, South Pole, North Pole, South Pole. So they, those speeds are different. And so they say, they say, ah, that's a, and also 45 degrees through is another different thing. Anyway, it's very complicated, but it relies on earthquakes mm. going back and forth to seismic stations that are at the antipodes. Wow. Okay. So the, there's the inner inner core, the inner core, the right. uh, outer core, the yes. mantle, the crust, yes. the crust. Yes, you got it. Okay, you got it. Interesting. And the outer core is liquid, and that's that's what you had imagined yeah. earlier. You know, when you said if you compress everything, it becomes a solid in the end, Charlie. So if you compress, I thought water was. You said if you compress water, it becomes a solid. What does it become? It's ice, does it? Ice, ice, yes, ice. So if you compress ice, if you compress water, it becomes ice. I thought if you compress things, it got hotter. Oh, uh, they do. They do get. Oh well, you can keep the. You have to keep get the heat out of it. You're right. If yeah. you compress the gas, it gets hotter. And so, but so what I just said would mean if you have to take the heat out of it while you're doing that. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, how <laughs> did how did life begin? One key ingredient is coming into view. It's a thing called the proto-ribosome. Right. So right now, Phil, yeah. you have DNA inside your cells. I hope so. The, the DNA, little pieces of it come out of the nucleus of your cell and goes to a little machine called a ribosome. And that ribosome reads the DNA and turns it into a protein. That's what's going on right now everywhere, everywhere in your body. That's why I'm so exhausted all the time trying to keep the fuel <laughs> up for these things. <laughs> you have, I think, something like uh, maybe something like an average of 200 ribosomes per cell. So these things are all over the place. And everything has bacteria have them, archaea have them, viruses don't have them, but we have them. Anyway, so in in 2009, Ada Nyonath got, she's an Israeli chemist, she got the Nobel Prize for deciphering, to figuring out what what the structure of the ribosome was. That was a long time ago, that's like 20 years ago. But now this new research is the following. They looked at the structure of the ribosomes in humans, in daffodils, in gorillas, in bacteria, in E. coli, and then they said, all of these things are doing the same job. What is common about all of these ribosomes? And so they just eliminated all the bells and whistles that have evolved in various lineages. And so they said, ah, the the core of a ribosome is this. And so they identified the specific, specific pieces. And Interestingly, it's only made out of RNA. It's not made out of protein. Hmm. The ribosome that we have inside your body is made out of RNA and protein. Anyway, they identified a proto-ribosome made purely of RNA, and then they decided to make it. And then they tested it, 
and they tested it and tested it. And finally, they created one that produced, that took one amino acid and hooked it up to another amino acid, producing a dipeptide. And that led everybody to say, whoa, we're making progress and trying to figure out how life got started on this planet. Wow. Okay. Because <laughs> that's what everyone's, everyone sort of thought this in some way, this ancient primeval soup that some something started it all off. But you're saying maybe we're closer to identifying what started it all off well it, there are many many steps from a primordial soup of just chemistry yeah. to to what what i just described was a proto ribosome so it's already a very very complicated thing but it is one step in mm. trying to get back to understand what was the earliest biochemistry mm. anyway back to a long discussion you and i've had over the years about uh, neanderthals and the early hunter gatherers in europe as we've discovered uh, we are related to the neanderthals uh, in fact, we are a bit Neanderthal, lots of people anyway. But ancient DNA has now revealed the history of hunter-gatherers in Europe, and researchers have identified at least eight previously unknown populations of early Europeans. Wow. Well, what's interesting and really cool about this is it's based on this new procedure we have and able to read the DNA sequences of skeletons from various ages. Uh -huh. so, you, so you know that humans were in Europe from about, I don't know, 50,000 years ago until today. Yeah. And what you do, you find a skeleton that's from 50,000 years, find one from 48,000, find one from 42,000, find one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you find hundreds and hundreds of them, then you sequence them, and, and they're also in different positions in Europe. This was in Spain, and this was in Hungary, this was in Budapest. And and then you say, okay, what were the how genetically similar were these groups to each other? Previously, we had, oh, there's a Gravettian civilization that lasted for 30,000 years because they were using the same type of stone tools. But they by looking at the genes, they said, holy cow, the genetic diversity right in neighboring countries was as large as we have today between, let's say, uh, Eskimos and, and Europeans or Europeans and Papuans, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's gigantic genetic differences they found as a function of time and as a function of position. In other words, they kind of get, they were much more realistic about ancient time and how dynamic things changed over space and time. And that was a whole new, that's a whole new way of looking at this because we used to say, oh, they're all hunters and gatherers. They must've been the same kind of people. They must've looked the same. Why? Because they had the same tools and that's is completely false and things were changing and it's so complicated that we still haven't gotten our, our uh, heads around it. But uh, instead of having one group, we have like 11 groups with different populations okay. and different okay. names. So it's really complicated. Okay. Now, uh, who were the world's earliest known horseback riders? They weren't the Cheyenne in uh, North America. <laughs> no. uh, not, neither, neither were they uh, the man from Snowy River. But the Yamnaya may have been. Who, yeah. were, who were they? The Yamnaya is a group that was recently found in genetic studies, the same kind of studies I just talked about. And uh, they uh, were in the region, but roughly around current Ukraine, where there's a war going on right now. Uh -huh. And um, these people seem to what what this analysis did was looked at skeletons and very carefully, not not at the DNA, but at the skeletons. And I don't know if you have you ever seen somebody who makes a living riding a horse? Uh, I know people who make a living riding a horse, but go on. And, you see the way they walk? Yeah, they walk in a bandy <laughs> in a bandy-legged way. Yeah. Yes. And when you when you when you walk in a bandy-legged way, your bones have changed. Yeah. 
And so they figured out there's something called horse riding syndrome of how your bones and tendons change. And they looked for this horse riding syndrome <laughs> as evidence for horse riding <laughs> in these young Naya skeletons. And they found them. They're about 3000 BC. And they these are the oldest skeletons ever found with this horse riding syndrome. And for example, you know that femur has a, a ball and then it goes into a socket? Yeah. Well, if you're, there's a horse between your legs, your legs are always being pushed away, right? Pushed yeah. out. Yeah. And so the femur, the ball of your femur is always being pushed in the socket and it makes the socket instead of round, it makes it oval shaped. And so they looked for these ovalization of this femur socket and uh, that's what they found. And so these are, that's how they were able to identify the first human horse riders of oh, about 3000 BC and they belong to the Yamnaya people who, by the way, seems to have take, this was a great advantage back then. And they were able to be the nomads that conquered East and West and took over lots of, I guess killed other people and tried to wipe them out in the tribalism that the human race is heir to. Mm. Yes, and they may have, of course, have had an annual uh, Yamnaya Cup. We just don't know, but there you go. Uh, Charlie, great as always. Thank you. All right. Yippee-yay-yo-kaye. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.